All right, so we're, we're making our way through the book of Acts. It is, uh, we're pretty, pretty early on still. We've only gotten through chapter one. So we're starting chapter two today, but just as a quick recap of what we've seen so far is uh, Jesus commissions his disciples in chapter one. He tells them that they are gonna be his witnesses, the witnesses of his resurrection and what his crucifixion means for salvation and that they have to hang in there until the Holy Spirit comes and empowers them to do this, but that they're going to take the gospel message all the way from Jerusalem, where they are, uh, where they're sitting and standing right at that time, all the way to the ends of the earth. And so uh, they're just hanging in there, waiting for the Holy Spirit up to this point. Um, While they're waiting, they, they get to work on a little bit of stuff. They appoint a uh, a replacement for Judas Iscariot, who, who died after betraying Christ. They find another guy to take his office, and that's basically where we're off to, and that's, that's all we've seen so far. So not a lot has happened yet in terms of actual uh, movement, but that changes today. So chapter 2 gets us into the real uh, pivot point, the real moment that everything flips and changes for the, for the apostles and the disciples of Jesus. So we got a ton to explore today. We're looking at 41 verses. So uh, that comes out to about one minute per verse on average for my sermon time. So we'll see how I do, but we'll, we'll get there. But let's just look at, at chapter uh, two, verse one. We'll start here and we'll just get right into it. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. That they, being all together in one place, refers back to the 120 disciples, followers of Jesus, uh, who are in the book of Acts. There's about 120 people, roughly, that, that love and follow Jesus to the degree that they understand uh, him and, and believe in him. And so, of course, 12 of those would be the apostles, and the remaining, remaining group are, are just people, regular old people that, that follow Jesus, just like you and me. Uh, but here in chapter two, verse one, we see the day of Pentecost arrived. So that leads to an important question, like what in the world is the day of Pentecost? Um, Let me answer that as as best I can here. Uh, Pentecost was a feast or festival of the Old Testament uh, Jews. It was also in the Old Testament, it was called the Feast of Weeks. Um, By the time the, the Gentile influence and the Roman world kind of came into it. They started calling it Pentecost uh, because Pentecost is the Greek word for 50. That's what Pentecost means. It's the word, it's the word for 50 in, in, the Jewish, uh, in the Greek language. And it, Pentecost, or the day of weeks, took place 50 days after the Passover. So the Passover was the day that the, the Jewish people commemorate God delivering them and redeeming them out of their slavery to Egypt. They call it the Passover because God literally passed over them and judged the, the Egyptians. But because the Jewish people trusted the Lord and sacrificed a, a lamb, that the blood of that lamb covered their sins. The, the judgment of God passed over the people of Israel and then they were delivered out of Egypt into freedom. Um, and, and they are... Uh, that is the signif- most significant day, even to this day, for the Jewish people, is, is Passover. But by the time we get to Pentecost, we, we learn that this is another thing that they're to do. So there's a commentator who explains it pretty well, so I'll just read what, what he says. 
He said 50 days after the Passover, Israel was at Mount Sinai receiving God's law through Moses. When they entered the land, the, the promised land, they were to keep a feast or festival in which they were to bring their first fruits, meaning, and, and the form that that was to take was bread. They would make bread out of their new grain and they would bring it as an offering to God. The first fruits offering stood for the hope of God's uh, provision in the coming harvest and also as a sign of thankfulness for his provision. So Pentecost is inseparable from Passover because it marks the, the date of Passover 50 days after. It's connected, right? You're going to celebrate this day 50 days after Passover. Leviticus 23.16 spells that out for the people. But the under idea, the underlying idea or symbolism of Pentecost is that just as God redeemed his people out of Egypt, so he will continue to provide for them uh, in, throughout the rest of their lives. And so Pentecost is linked to Passover in terms of when it was to be celebrated. You've got 50 days from Passover to Pentecost. That, that's, they're, they're linked together, but they're meant to show the same idea that God redeems and then God provides. So the day of Pentecost is here. That's what we're seeing in this text. There, there's a huge, huge crowd of people, as we're going to see, uh, in Jerusalem at this time for the Feast of Pentecost. The, most of these people were probably still in Jerusalem from Passover. Because if you're traveling, for in some cases, we're going to see hundreds and hundreds of miles uh, by foot or by animal, because uh, they didn't have air travel or anything like that. So the traveling that it would take to get to Jerusalem for the Passover, they were like, it's not worth really going back home. Let's just wait till Pentecost is over and then we'll go home. So they hang out for quite a while. But uh, this is where the scene takes us. It is the day of Pentecost. This is the celebration of the Feast of Weeks. It has arrived and all the disciples are together in one place. All right, let's look at verse two, uh, two through the beginning of verse four. It says, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so here we're seeing what happens on this day of Pentecost, this one day 2,000 years ago, 50 days after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection because Jesus was crucified just before Passover. He was in the tomb on Passover and raised to life on the Sunday after. And, and so here you have 50 days later, the disciples are all gathered together and this amazing thing happens. This, this mo momentous, pivotal moment in human history takes place. And it's the moment where the Holy Spirit, God himself in the third person of the Trinity comes down upon those who trust in Christ. The, the description of this event is filled with sound and sights, right? There's the sound of a rushing wind. There's the sight of these, these divided tongues as a fire. Um, and, and this is all uh, what they're trying to describe, like Luke is trying to describe for us what this sounded like, what this looked like, because we weren't there. In fact, Luke wasn't there himself. He's writing this from the eyewitness accounts of, of those who were. And so there, there's this language of description, but it's, 
it's like it sounded like the wind. So it's not the same as there was a big wind in the house. There was a sound like wind. There was something as of fire that rested on each person. But of course, the imagery here is significant from uh, anyone who under, who's read their Old Testament and, and knows that God very frequently appears to his people in Old Testament times through these, these symbols of fire and wind. God spoke to Moses through the burning bush, this fire that was burning, but it wasn't consuming the bush. And God spoke through that. God speaks to Elijah through through wind and through uh, the soft breeze. And so there's oftentimes that God shows himself in profound ways to his people in these forms. In fact, Jesus describes the Holy Spirit's work to, to Nicodemus in John chapter three, verse eight, as, uh, as this wind, as, like, as if he's working, as if the wind is working. We don't really understand how the wind comes and goes but it's just there. And so Jesus is like, so the Holy Spirit works in ways that are mysterious like that. So these are symbolizing what God has done uh, or that God is here, that God is present and that he is now rested upon his people. This time though, it's not just for a temporary moment or for a significant event, but really symbolizing a forever connection that God would have with his people through his spirit. And, and so we'll get into more of that in just a little bit today. But, but that's what we're seeing happen. The day of Pentecost is there and the Holy Spirit now comes upon them. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. If we go back to verse four, let's, and we'll see what, where they go from here. It says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So, the first thing that happens to the disciples as the Holy Spirit comes upon them is that they've been given now this ability to speak in other tongues is the word here, but really the idea is languages, right? Tongues is just an old fashioned way of talking about languages. They're speaking languages that they do not, they did not learn to speak. They are speaking a language that is foreign to them, but that the spirit of God is giving them the power to do this. There's a reason for this. Uh, this, is, this is a specific time where God does this upon his people because the, the crowd that is in Jerusalem, as we're going to see in just a moment, are from all of these different nations. And so God's spirit is empowering his disciples to do something that they did not have the natural ability to do, and that is to speak God's truth in a way that could be understood by all the crowds of people and all of these different nations, signifying, in fact, that the Great Commission is for the nations and not just for the Jewish people, that everyone can get in on this through, through the preaching of the gospel. And so this is, this is like one of those really controversial passages in some sense. I don't know that I would call it controversial, but there's definitely differences of opinion on this among Christians. And, and those who grew up in what we now call Pentecostal churches uh, find this as kind of the basis for their, their uh, interpretation of the gifts of the Spirit. And that's, that's all fine and good, right? Um, no problems with that. I'm not going to fight any, anybody on that. I think that is a, an area where we can have open hands and have various opinions and views. But what's, what is clear, though, is as you look at this text, 
this is not the same gift of tongues that, that Paul refers to later in, in 1 Corinthians 14, where he talks about this heavenly gift of speaking a heavenly language. The languages that they were speaking in this moment were earthly languages. They were known languages. And, and that becomes abundantly clear as we keep reading the passage. So look at verse 5 uh, through 13. It says, Now there were in Jer- dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So there's a huge crowd of people in Jerusalem from every nation under heaven because the, and they're, they're predominantly Jewish or Gentiles who converted to Judaism because they're at the Feast of Pentecost. They're here because they're devout uh, religious observers of Judaism. But they've come from all these different places. And, and it says at the sound, verse 6, at the sound of the multitude, uh, at this sound, the sound of the, the disciples speaking, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Which is sort of a, a way of saying, aren't these guys all just a bunch of dummies? Like, what, what are they doing here? Galileans are not like the cream of the crop. They're not Athens or Jerusalem. or It's just a regular place with regular people. So then they say, how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, which is Gentiles who converted to Judaism, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues, in our own languages, the mighty works of God. So this is just an amazing thing that God is doing this, this work by his spirit to empower the, the first Christians to speak in a way that breaks down the barriers of even language so that the gospel goes forth. In fact, there are, there are lots of people who, who un- see this and understand this as a reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel confused the languages of the people. The Tower of Babel was a moment of humbling of humanity and spreading them out so that they can't all work together to try to reach heaven by themselves. And yet here we see the reversal of this this moment happening where now the gospel is being preached and proclaimed. And though all of these people probably spoke the same language, right? Just like most people in the world, at least if you're in in the business world, you're going to speak English because that's the kind of universal language for business in our world today. So most people, even if they're from France or from, uh, you know, South America or some, if they're involved in business dealings, they're going to learn English. Most of these people would have had a common language and yet the Holy Spirit is giving these people the, the, the gift of speaking in a language that isn't theirs, that is heard in the native language of each person. That's a really neat thing. And it goes in verse 12 to say that they were all amazed and perplexed. 
yeah, we'd all be amazed and perplexed too, right? It'd be like, what is happening? This is really crazy. And they were saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. So uh, most of the people in this, in this crowd are going, wow, what in the world is this about? We need to figure this out. This is amazing. We don't know what it means. But you always got the, the people in the crowd who are going to be the naysayers and like, ah, they're just drunk. You know, they're just, they're just, that's what it means. When they're filled with new wine, that's what they're saying. Uh, they're just drunk people, which I, which I find funny because uh, normally getting drunk doesn't make you smarter. Like you don't, you don't usually, you know, get drunk and then can start speaking French when you don't know French, right? Uh, that's just not how it works usually. Um, some guy will be like, ah, it works for me. Uh, doesn't, doesn't for most of us. So verse, uh, so that, that's where we're at. Now the question is asked, what does this mean? By the people who aren't skeptical, by the people who aren't just trying to mock the situation, the sincere question of most of the people in this crowd are, what does this mean? And that's a great question. Let's explore what it means because the Bible tells us what it means. In verse 14 through 21, we see Peter stand up and preach a sermon that is, I don't even think arguably, his greatest sermon ever preached. He preaches this amazing message that explains the significance of the day of Pentecost. So let's look at it together. Verse 14 through 36 is where we'll stop, but we'll, we'll actually stop along the way before that. It says, but Peter, standing with the eleven lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. So Peter's reasoning for why they're not drunk is it's 9 a.m. I don't know if that's sound reasoning or not, but there you go. He's like, no, they're not drunk because it's only nine in the morning. Um, But here's what he goes on to say, verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Here's a quotation from 17 to 21. He's going to quote a long passage from Joel. He says, in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day." And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter takes this opportunity where it's being asked, what does this mean? And also he addresses the, the second mocking group too, saying, well, they're all drunk. And he says, well, they're not drunk. Okay, now let's, ask the, let's answer the actual question. What does this mean? And he turns to Joel chapter 2, verse 28 to 32. That's the passage he quotes from. And what he's telling them 
What he's, what he's using this passage for is to say, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. The thing you are witnessing now, the thing you are seeing happening right here, was prophesied about, explained in your Bibles. Remember, he's speaking in a, to a Jewish audience. These are people who knew their Old Testaments probably pretty well, actually. And they, he's going, this was all talked about. This was all addressed in our Bibles. And so he reads that long quotation about how the Spirit of God is going to f- come down and how people will see visions and dream dreams and prophesy and, and all of this is going to happen through, uh, through the Spirit of God. And so the first thing that Peter tells us happened and what it means for Pentecost to take place in this way is that the Old Testament promises of salvation are fulfilled. That this is the moment where it's like, we're, we're done now. We've got this accomplished. The Spirit of God descending upon his people was the last piece of the puzzle that needed to be accomplished. And so the Holy Spirit comes down. They're seeing it happen with their own eyes. And he's going, guys, it's all written down for us. We see it all in the book of Joel. So the first thing that we see happening on Pentecost is the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. We see something else, though, as Peter continues. If we look at verse 22 through, 20, uh, through 36, he's going to tell us what, even more so what this means. He says, this is still Peter speaking, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Well, let's just stop there for a moment because I think we need to understand what this means, that the day of Pentecost means that the Spirit of God empowers us to see Jesus. He's pointing us to Jesus. This is the amazing thing about Peter's sermon. It is so Jesus-centered. It is completely about Christ. He's going, yeah, the Holy Spirit comes upon us. He empowers us for this. But now here's what you really need to know. There's this man named Jesus whom you know. These people knew Jesus. At least they knew of Jesus because there's only 50 days that's gone by since his crucifixion and his resurrection. This is not a group of foreign people who have no concept of who Jesus is. Many of these people, maybe most of these people, were around during his earthly ministry. And so he's going to take us through an articulation of the gospel message beautifully and profoundly. He starts with the life of Christ, the life and ministry of Jesus. That's what verse 22 says, right? Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. They, they, they saw it happen. They saw the miracles. They heard his teachings. As you yourselves know, he, he talks about the perfect life of Jesus. 
He says that Jesus lived this perfect life and that perfect life was displayed through his ability to do these miracles and perform these signs. That God empowered Jesus, the Father empowers Jesus through, through the Spirit of God that descends on him upon his baptism. He does all these amazing miracles that we read about in the Gospels. But those miracles and signs and wonders are not just some sideshow act. They're meant to display for us that Jesus Christ is the perfect Son of God. That he was sent from Jesus, from God the Father, into the world to save us but that he lives a perfect life. And, and Peter articulates this through that example of his miracles. Then he hones in on the death of Christ in verse 23. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He gives another aspect of the gospel. We have the perfect life of Jesus, but we also have the death of Jesus in our place. That Jesus was delivered up by God for us. He's making this point very clearly that it wasn't the Romans, it wasn't even the Jewish leaders that ultimately decided to kill Jesus. They were instruments in God's hands. God, by his definite plan and foreknowledge, uh, led Jesus to be delivered up and that he was then crucified by the hands of lawless men, right? God is sovereign over both the ends and the means, but the, the, the end was that Jesus was crucified for sinners. The means to get Jesus crucified is these lawless men, these Romans particularly are in view there. So you have the life of Jesus, you have the death of Jesus for our sins. And that significantly happened on the Passover. And it's like, Peter's going, can't you guys connect these dots? Like, this is what God did through, through Jesus. He crucified him as our Passover lamb on Passover. And now he's, he's given us his spirit on Pentecost. So the life and death of Jesus, and then the resurrection is in view. And he spends the majority of this sermon talking about the resurrection because that's the part that people were probably the most skeptical about. They saw his life. They saw him all die. They all saw him die because they were all in Jerusalem. This wasn't like a, a backroom execution. It was a big public spectacle. He didn't have to spend a lot of time convincing them that Jesus was crucified. But he does spend time convincing them that he was uh, raised to life. So look at what he says in verse 24. He says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Verse 25, for or because David says concerning him. I love this because Peter goes right back to his Old Testament and says, you guys are skeptical about the resurrection. Well, your, your Bibles told us this was going to happen. David in Psalm 16, which we happen to read, not by accident this morning for our call to worship. He goes and quotes from Psalm 16, where he says, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. 
For you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Back to Peter here in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about, our, about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. This is Peter's point. He takes them to the scriptures And he says, David said that God would not allow his Holy One to see corruption or go to Hades. And he says, listen, he's like, I can say this with confidence. David's dead. He's been decayed. He's in the tomb. We know where he's buried. So David wasn't talking about David. Who was he talking about? He was talking about Jesus. And he just uses this masterful way of showing how the Old Testament scriptures are fulfilled in Jesus. That this passage isn't about David not seeing corruption or being abandoned. It is about Jesus not seeing corruption or being abandoned. That that Jesus was raised to life. And so he takes them to the resurrection of Jesus and says, "This, this is what this was telling us. And then he takes them to one more aspect of the the Messiah's role. So we have the life, the perfect life, sinless life, the substitutionary death, the death in our place for our sins. We have the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And now we've got the last piece, which is the ascension, which we saw at the beginning of chapter one of this book. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he goes into the ascension and he says, Jesus is now in heaven at the right hand of God. And once again, Peter doesn't just say, well, because we said it happened, it happened. No, he says, the Bible says this would happen. The Bible says that the Lord would say to his Lord, sit at my right hand. And David wrote those words in Psalm 110 verse one, but David, but Peter is saying, David's not talking about himself because David didn't ascend to the throne of God, but Jesus did. This is about Jesus once again. So Jesus articulates, or excuse me, Peter articulates that Jesus is the whole point of the day of Pentecost and everything going forward. That all of the promises of God have found their fulfillment in Christ which is what, Pete, what, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, that all these promises of God find their fulfillment in Jesus. So Peter articulates the gospel message 
by making it central about Jesus. He focuses on those major aspects of Christ's life and ministry. His, his sinlessness, his, uh, his death on the cross in our place, his resurrection and his ascension. So we see that the day of Pentecost means that Old Testament promises are fulfilled. It means that Jesus Christ is the one through whom we have salvation. And it means one more thing as we continue just a few more verses to look at. Verse 36 to uh, 30, excuse me, 37 to 41. It says, now when they heard this, when they being the crowd of people who were there, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gifts, gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. <laughs> That's a fast growing church right there, right? 120 to 3,000 literally overnight. That's wild, but we'll get into the implications of that as we work through this book. But here's, here's the final meaning of what, what the Holy Spirit descending upon his people is for us. The Holy Spirit gives us faith and repentance to trust in Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the one who opens our eyes to see our need. That's what it means when the Bible says they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. They were, they were feeling the weight of their need. They saw their lack. They saw their sinfulness. They saw their brokenness. And they were cut down by that reality. And so they asked the question, what must we do? Which is actually the wrong question to ask, but it's the only question they knew to ask. Right? What they asked was, what, what do we have to do to fix this? And Peter basically says, well, you don't actually do anything but you turn away from your sins and you turn to Christ. That's what you do. You have faith through repentance. You believe. You turn away from the, the way you're living now, which is sinfulness and brokenness, and you turn to Christ. And then he says you should be baptized. To be baptized isn't a way into the Christian life as, as if, belief isn't the, the way, right? It's, it's a marker, it's a sign of what your faith has happened in your life and it's an outward expression of that through baptism. And so we repent, we turn to Jesus, that's what repentance is, it's turning around, the word literally means to do a 180 degree turn, you turn away, you turn to Christ and then he promise you, promises to give you his spirit. Every believer, every genuine Christian in the world has the spirit of God within them. And then the last thing that Peter lands here on is that anyone is welcome to get in on this. Verse 39, he says, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, 
everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. God does the calling. God does the drawing. God's the one who brings us by his spirit to see our need for Christ. But anyone that God calls and everyone whom God calls to, to be saved will be saved. And so he calls these people to repentance. So this is recording for us what happened on the day of Pentecost 2,000 some years ago. How does it affect our lives today? How should we apply this to ourselves, to our lives? The most obvious thing that we have to say is if you've never trusted Christ by repenting of your sin and turning to Jesus, that's step one for you. That's what you need to do. You need to do it today. Give your heart to Christ. Turn to him in belief and trust. For those of you who have done that, the, the rest of this passage showed, sheds light onto how we should understand the day of Pentecost. I think it's an amazing thing, the timing of how God does all these things, where he, he by his sovereign hand, had Christ die on Passover, just before the Passover, on the eve of Passover. And that signifies the wrath of God being removed from us, just as that lamb in Egypt passed over the wrath of God from the people of Israel. We have this Passover lamb in Christ. But just as they also had a feast of weeks where they could remember the provision of God, so we have on the day of Pentecost, on the Feast of Weeks, the Holy Spirit fulfilling that day by being for us all that we need him to be. All that we need for the Christian life, I should say. He applies that work of Christ to us and he gives us all that we need, which is exactly what Jesus promised he would do. John 14, just before his crucifixion, verse 25 to 27 Jesus tells his disciples, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But my helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled neither let them be afraid. Jesus promises his disciples and everyone who would follow in their footsteps that the Holy Spirit will be for them all that they need for the Christian life. He is the helper we need. He is our counselor. He is the one to bring to our minds all that we need to remember. And he also instills in us the peace of God that we have through Jesus. So we don't need to be troubled and we don't need to be afraid because God is with us. That's an amazing thing and I'm grateful for it. My hope is that each of you would know this in your life, that you would know the peace of God that comes through Jesus by his spirit's application and that if you've never trusted Christ, you would do that today. If you need to talk with someone about that, I am up here, I'll be around, I'll be available, Pastor Chris or the person who invited you would be happy to talk with you about that. But please do, if you need to talk more about what it means to be a follower of Christ, we'd love to have that conversation. For the rest of you, this is a reminder that God not only saves us, but he provides for us for everything we need by his spirit. 
So let's pray. Father, we, we thank you uh, that you have uh, just done an amazing thing for us as you poured out your spirit on the day of Pentecost all those years ago and continue to give us your spirit now as we trust in your son, Jesus. Pray, I pray God for, uh, for your help for each person in this room, for whatever struggles and fears and troubles we carry into this room with us, that you would meet us by your spirit and help us to find the comfort and peace we have through Jesus. We pray that the ongoing uh, work of, of um, your spirit would keep pointing us back to the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we pray that as we turn now in our time of worship to your table and the remembrance that we give our hearts uh, of, of your death for us, of what you've done for us on the cross, would you draw us there, Lord, by your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.